The Anxious Bench by the Reverend John Williamson Nevin, Chapter 2 The merits of the anxious bench not to be measured by its popularity, nor by its seeming success. Circumstances in which it is found to prevail. No spiritual force required to give it effect. The popularity of the anxious bench proves nothing in its favor. We find it, to be sure, extensively in vogue and with a large portion of the community in high honor. There are whole sects that seem to have no conception of anything like a vigorous life in the church without its presence. And beyond the range of these, scores of ministers and congregations are found who glory in it as the very gate of heaven and consider it no less essential than the pulpit itself to the progress of any considerable revival. During the last winter, as already mentioned, there were places where the spirit of the anxious bench might be said to carry all before it, and it is likely it will be so again during the winter that is to come. But all who are at all acquainted with the world know that the worst things may thus run for a season and be glorified in the popular mind. And especially is this the case where they hold their existence in the element of excitement and connect themselves with religion, the deepest and most universal of all human interests. No weight of fashion enlisted in favor of the anxious bench can deserve to be much respected in such a trial of its merits as we are here called to make. It should be remembered, however, that this popularity, such as it is, is in a certain sense but the echo of a sound which has already ceased to be heard. Whatever may be the pretensions of the anxious bench on the field we are now contemplating, it is, after all, a stale interest, so far as the church at large is concerned. Not many years since, it stood in very considerable credit in different parts of the Presbyterian Church and over a large portion of New England. But on this ground, the thing has fairly exploded. It has been tried and found wanting. Here and there, it may still be held in honor. But in a general view, even those who were formerly its friends have come to look upon it with distrust and are no longer willing to give it their countenance. As with general consent, throughout New England and New York, the Congregational and Presbyterian churches have abandoned the use of the anxious bench for a more excellent way. With all its popularity, then, where it now prevails, it is after all a stale interest, worn threadbare and flung aside, in a different quarter of the religious world. In these circumstances, no great account is to be made of its present credit in any view. Nothing can be argued again in favor of the anxious bench from the success with which it may appear to be employed in the service of religion. This is often appealed to for this purpose. We are referred triumphantly to the actual results of the system as tried in different places. We are told of hundreds awakened and converted in connection with its use. God, it is said, has owned it and impressed his seal upon it by working through it mightily as a means of salvation. And if he choose to honor it in this way, who are we that we should find fault or condemn? We should rejoice to see souls brought into the kingdom in any way. We should be willing to make room in such a case for the manifold grace of God, allowing it to have free course in any channel through which it is found to flow, 
and not seeking to force it into conformity with our own narrow views. All this carries with it a plausible sound, but after all, the representation is entitled to no respect. In the first place, to draw an argument for the anxious bench from its immediate visible effects is to take for granted that these are worth all they claim to be worth. We are pointed to powerful awakenings of which it is considered to be the very soul. We are referred to scores and hundreds of conversions, effected directly or indirectly by its means. But who shall assure us that all this deserves to be regarded with confidence as the genuine fruit of religion? It is marvelous credulity to take every excitement in the name of religion for the work of God's Spirit. It is an enormous demand on our charity when we are asked to accept in mass, as true and solid, the wholesale conversions that are made in this way. It will soon be made to appear that there is the greatest reason for caution and distrust with regard to this point. No doubt the use of the anxious bench may be found associated in certain cases with revivals, the fruits of which are worthy of all confidence. But this character they will have, through the force of a different system, that would have been just as complete without any such accompaniment. In such cases, the revival may be said to prevail in spite of the new measures with which it is encumbered. On the other hand, in proportion as the spirit of such measures is found to animate and rule the occasion, there will be reason to regard the whole course of things with doubt. One thing is most certain. Spurious revivals are common, and as the fruit of them, false conversions lamentably abound. An anxious bench may be crowded where no divine influence whatever is felt. A whole congregation may be moved with excitement and yet be losing at the very time more than is gained in a religious point of view. Hundreds may be carried through the process of anxious bench conversion, and yet their last state may be worse than the first. It will not do to point us to immediate visible effects, to appearances on the spot, or to glowing reports struck off from some heated imagination immediately after. Piles of copper, fresh from the mint, are, after all, something very different from piles of gold. Again, it does not follow by any means that a thing is right and good because it may be made subservient occasionally in the hands of God to a good end. Allow that the system represented by the anxious bench has often had the effect of bringing souls by a true and saving change to Christ, and still it may deserve to be opposed and banished from the church. God can cause the wrath and folly of man both to praise him in such ways as to himself may seem best. And so, under the influence of his spirit, he can make almost any occasion subservient to the awakening and conversion of a soul. But it would be wretched logic to infer from this the propriety of employing every such occasion with preparation and design as a part of the regular work of the gospel. It is sometimes said, indeed, that if only some souls are saved by the use of new measures, we ought thankfully to own their power and give them our countenance, since even one soul is worth more than a world. But it should be remembered that the salvation of a sinner may, notwithstanding, cost too much 
If truth and righteousness are made to suffer for the purpose, more is lost than won by the result. We must not do wrong even to gain a soul for heaven. And if for one thus gained, ten should be virtually destroyed by the very process employed to reach the point, who will say that such a method of promoting Christianity would deserve to be approved? There may be movements in the name of religion and under the form of religion and yielding to some extent the fruits of religion, which after all come from beneath and not from above. The history of the church is full of instances illustrating the truth of this remark. Simeon, the stylite, distinguished himself in the 5th century by taking his station on the top of a pillar for the glory of God and the benefit of his own soul. This whimsical discipline he continued to observe for 37 years. Meanwhile, he became an object of widespread veneration. Vast crowds came from a distance to gaze upon him and hear him preach. The measure took with the people wonderfully. Thousands of heathen were converted and baptized by his hand. Among these, it may be charitably trusted, were some whose conversion was inward and solid. God made use of Simeon's pillar to bring them to himself. The seal of his approbation might seem to have rested upon it to an extraordinary extent. No wonder the device became popular. The quackery of the pillar took possession of the Eastern world and stood for centuries a monument of the folly that gave it birth. We laugh at it now, and yet it seemed a good thing in its time and carried with it a weight of popularity such as no new measure can boast of in the present day. But why speak of stylitism in particular? The whole system of monkery may be taken as an example of the same force on a larger scale. What world of abominations has it not been found to embrace? And yet, under what plausible pretenses, it sought the confidence of the church in the beginning. There were not wanting powerful reasons to give it recommendation. The whole Christian world, in fact, fell into the snare. The interest became a torrent before which no man was found able to stand. Most assuredly, too, there was the life and power of religion, to some extent, at work in the movement. Monkery was to many, in fact, the means of conversion and salvation. And to this hour, an argument might be framed in its favor, under this view, not less plausible, to say the least, than any that can be presented for the use of the anxious bench. The Romish church has always delighted in arrangements and services animated with the same false spirit. In her penitential system, all pains have been taken to produce effect by means of outward postures and dress, till in the end, amid the solemn mummery, no room has been left for genuine penitence at all. Yet not a ceremony was ever introduced into the system that did not seem to be recommended by some sound religious reason at the time. The same thing may be said of the services of that church generally. In another sphere, look at Millerism. The error, as it has been zealously preached within the past year, has no doubt had an awakening effect on the minds of many, and some, it may be trusted, have been actually conducted by means of it into the kingdom of God. But will any pretend to say that it deserves to be encouraged on this account? 
It is said indeed that such an idea has been occasionally thrown out. Only, however, where the judgment had been in some measure corrupted by the spirit of quackery previously at work. No morally sane mind could be willing for a moment to patronize such a lie on account of any apparently salutary effects it might be found to have in particular cases. Let us not be told, then, that the anxious bench is a godly interest because many seem to be convicted by its means and some are converted in fact. All this may be, and the general operation of the system remain notwithstanding intrinsically and permanently bad. As a general thing, the movement of coming to the anxious bench gives no proper representation of the religious feeling that may be actually at work in the congregation at the time. It is always more or less theatrical, and often has no other character whatever. A sermon usually goes before, but frequently this has no felt relation at all to the subsequent excitement so far as its actual contents are concerned. The writer was present not a great while ago, as a stranger in a church, where a preacher of some little note in connection with the subject of revivals had been introduced under the expectation and hope that something of the kind might be secured at the time by his instrumentality. The congregation had but little appearance of life at the beginning, and still less as the sermon drew towards a close. The truth is, it was a very dull discourse at the best. The preacher was not well, and altogether he failed to make the least impression on the great body of his audience. A number were fairly asleep, and others were bordering on the same state. The preacher saw and felt that he had preached without effect, and took occasion, after the sermon was properly ended, to express his regret in view of the fact, and to add a few valedictory remarks in the prospect of his leaving the place the next day, without any thought evidently of calling out the anxious, where not a trace of feeling had been discerned. But the new strain adopted at the close served to rouse attention and create interest. The congregation put on a more wakeful aspect, and something like emotion could be perceived in the countenances of a few. The preacher took courage, and after a few minutes, dared to try the anxious bench. As usual, the hymn was started, Come Humble Sinner, etc., and carried through with pauses in which sinners present were urged and pressed to seek their salvation by coming forward. Soon a female was seen going to the place, then another, and another, till at last a whole seat was filled. One old lady rose and moved around, trying to induce others to go forward. At the close of the meeting, I retired, wondering within myself that educated men, as were both the preacher in this case and the pastor at his side, could so impose upon themselves as to attach any importance to such a demonstration in such circumstances. It was attempted to carry forward the work by an appointment for the next evening, but on coming together at the time, it was found that it would not go forward, and so it was dropped altogether. Commonly, indeed, those who deal in the anxious seat rely far less upon the presentation of truth to the understanding than they do upon other influences to bring persons forward. Pains are taken, rather, to raise the imagination and confound the judgment. 
exciting appeals are made to the principle of fear. Advantage is taken in every way of the senses and nerves. Especially the mysterious force of sympathy is enlisted in support of the measure and made to tell in many cases with immense effect. As might be expected accordingly, the most favorable subjects for the operation of the system are persons in whom feelings prevail over judgment and who are swayed by impulse more than reflection. In an enlightened, well-instructed congregation, the anxious bench can never be generally popular. Where it is in full favor, a large proportion of those who are brought out by it are females and persons who are quite young. It often happens that the bench is filled altogether with such cases, the greater part of them perhaps mere girls and boys. So, where a community is characterized by a general ignorance with regard to the nature of true religion, the measure is frequently applied with great effect, and those precisely who are the most rude and uncultivated are the most likely in such circumstances to come under its power. It requires, then, no spiritual power to use the anxious bench with effect. To preach the truth effectually, a man must have a certain spiritual force in himself, which others are made to feel. But nothing of this sort is needed to secure success here. The object sought is a mere outward demonstration on the subject of religion, which may be gained by other forms of influence just as well. It shows no inward power whatever to be able to move a congregation in this way. It can be done without eloquence and calls for no particular earnestness or depth of thought. It is truly wonderful indeed with how little qualification of intellect and soul a man may be fitted to carry all before him at certain times and to show himself off to the eyes of a bewitched multitude as the great power of God by having recourse to new measures. He may be vulgar, coarse and dull, and so pointless and sapless in his ordinary pulpit services that it will be a weariness to hear him. And yet you shall find him, from time to time, throwing a whole community into excitement, gathering around him crowded houses night after night, and exercising, as it might seem, far the space of three or four weeks an irresistible sway in favor of religion. Such cases are by no means uncommon. Some of the most successful practitioners in the art of the anxious bench show themselves lamentably defective in the power of serious godliness, as well as in mental cultivation generally. The general habit of their lives is worldly and vain, and their religion, apart from the occasional whirlwinds of excitement in which they are allowed to figure in their favorite way, may be said to be characteristically superficial and cold. Nay, the evidence may be palpable that religion has nothing at all to do with the system in cases where it is employed with the greatest apparent effect. Nothing is more common than for those even who glory in the power of the anxious bench as employed within their own communion to look with entire distrust on its results as exhibited in the practice of other sects. What is trumpeted in the one case as a glorious revival is allowed to pass in the other without notice as, at best, a questionable excitement. In this way, it is practically acknowledged that the system does not necessarily involve spiritual power. It can be made to work as well in connection with error as in connection with truth. 
it is as fully at the service of quackery and imposture as it can be available in the cause of genuine religion. It is well adapted indeed to become the sport of quacks under every name. All wild and fanatical sects employ it with equal success. Campbellites, Weinbrennerians, and Universalists show the same power, when necessary, in producing revivals under this form. Millerism and Mormonism, it may be added, are just as capable of doing wonders in the same way, though the last has declared itself not favorable to the anxious bench as interfering with regular and rational worship. Nothing can be more precarious, then, than the argument for this system as drawn from its apparent effects and results. In the sphere of religion, as indeed in the world of life generally, the outward can have no value except as it stands continually in the power of the inward. To estimate the force of appearances, we must try their moral constitution, and this always involves a reference to the source from which they spring. A miracle, in the true sense, is not simply a prodigy nakedly and separately considered. It must include a certain moral character. Especially there must be an inward freedom and divine strength in the person from whom it proceeds. No wonder works could authenticate the mission of a man pretending to come from God who should display in all his movements an inward habit at war with the idea of religion. And just as little are we bound to respect, in the present case, the mere show of force without regard to the agency by which it is exhibited. Those who deal in the anxious bench are accustomed to please themselves with the idea that it is an argument of power on the part of their ministry to be able in this way to produce a great outward effect. This is considered sufficient, it might seem, apart from the personality of the preacher altogether, to authenticate his strength. But no judgment can be more superficial. The personality of the preacher must ever condition and determine the character of his work. It were easy to give a score of living examples in which the semblance of success on a large scale in the use of this system at the present time is at once belied by palpable defect here. The men are of such a spirit that it is not possible to confide intelligently in any results it may seem to reach by their ministry. We are authorized before all examination to pronounce them valueless and vain. So utterly weak in this argument is the appeal to facts as managed frequently by superficial thinkers. In every view of the case, the fruits of the anxious bench must be received with great caution, while to a great extent they are entitled to no confidence whatever.